that is feminine or masculine or androgynous is something that can only be defined for me by me. I go-go dancer at a pride party and the amount of money that I made versus the amount of money that the thin people made was not the same. I don't think that straight people really realize just how like heteronormative um, and like built around straight people society is. Hey everybody, I'm Brad Palumbo and welcome back to the Damage Control Podcast where we're reclaiming the LGBT community from the insane leftists who've taken it over and restoring a sane center-right perspective on this increasingly unhinged debate. My guest today is Brianna Ivey, a transgender woman who transitioned as a minor and then, in her early adulthood, went through surgery she now views as experimental and has some serious regrets. We get frank about her experiences and her nuanced opinions about the state of the transgender movement and the conservative movement today. Then, as always, I react to some crazy LGBT TikToks and lose some brain cells for your enjoyment. Buckle up and get ready, because this is a really interesting episode. I really enjoyed recording this one. If you're new here, do consider subscribing. We're growing really fast. Or if you're listening to us on audio, please do take a second and rate or review us on whatever platform you're listening. And if you're on YouTube or Facebook, do like and comment with your thoughts. Now, let's get into our conversation with Brianna. Brianna, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to meet you. Yeah, yeah. It's always great to talk to people face to face like this. I've followed you for a while and I watched some of your interviews recently. You have a really interesting story to tell. So for folks that don't know, Brianna is a trans woman and a YouTuber who's spoken out now uh, pretty recently for the first time about some of the false promises that were made to her and some of the things uh, that she didn't know about the surgeries she experienced and went down and some of the regrets she has now. So Brianna, first of all, I just want to say like, kudos to you for telling your story. It must not be easy. Why did you decide to speak out? Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, it was definitely something I didn't plan on doing for years. And what really motivated what really motivated me to talk about it was because I saw over time trans issues become like the forefront in our just our political conversations in this country. And it really became like a huge wedge issue. And I felt like I had such a unique story and that I started that transition very young and also at a time when it wasn't a big political conversation. And I thought that I had a perspective in and out of the entire process and all of the positive and negative things that I went through. And I wanted to just share with people like an in-depth look into what it can look like and where things can go wrong and where things can go right especially because there's a huge conversation right now about trans kids, but we're not really hearing a lot from the trans kids themselves. It's a lot of adults kind of picking and choosing pieces of those stories. Right. And you did transition as a minor. So let's go back all the way to the beginning. How old were you when you first started to obviously being born a male growing up as a little boy, when you first started to feel uncomfortable with your gender, or like you belonged with the girls? Yeah, my first memory of that, and I remember the exact moment. I was in first grade, so I was about seven years old. And I we would line up boys and girls like they do all the time in school. And I would always automatically go to the girls line. And it was just like an instinctual thing for me. It wasn't like people told me to go over there. It wasn't like I had I was being really encouraged, um, especially because I was in an environment where that without even being gay was not widely accepted at all. And so it was just like innate behavior in me. And I saw myself 
alongside the girls in a way that I didn't with boys. Were you a feminine little boy? Extremely, extremely. I always was. Um, All of my interests were very feminine. All of my girls were friends. I always played with traditionally girls' toys. Um, I had very feminine mannerisms. Like it It was down to like every fiber of my being. And did you feel like that was okay to be feminine and be a boy? No, I did not like that at all about myself. I, it wasn't, so I'm not close to like my biological father, but, and he left when I was really little, but he was not approving of that. Um, And then my stepfather after that, he mistreated me and my family and he was not, he did not approve of my feminine traits at all. And he would be upset with my mother if she encouraged it or allowed me to behave in that way or if she would take me with her to like do things like get makeup or perfume and stuff like that he would be extremely upset and he would say that she was encouraging me to be gay and she was pushing me to be gay um I was also really tormented at school for being like they decided I was gay before even I did and I was I was bullied for that quite a bit. So no, I, and so I developed a lot of like internalized shame about it. And I just didn't like those aspects of me. Yeah. So one of the things I want to explore with you and I'm really interested in is there's always been a subset of the population with genuine gender dysphoria, right? From a very young age, they feel like they're trapped in the wrong body, but then there's got to be some percentage of the huge increase in trans identification that comes from people who would have otherwise grown up to be gay or lesbian because they're gender nonconforming in different ways, but they're not actually transgender at heart. But for some people, it can feel easier to become a girl than to exist as a hyper-feminine man. Did you feel that way? And this is something that even now I spend a lot of time reflecting on and I've really pushed myself to think about. I questioned a lot of the time whether or not I felt like I rushed through a transition and rushed to transition because I had so many negative forces in my life and I had been through so many really negative experiences about being a gay boy that I thought that being that transitioning into like a straight female was going to be a better option for me. People would like that more. People would like me more rather than being an extremely feminine man. And I questioned myself on whether or not did I did I rush through a transition to escape those feelings so I didn't really have to face that anymore and I got to just live a different life. And I reflect a lot on whether whether I wanted to actually transition or if it's I just wanted to be a different person because people didn't like the person I was. And... I look back now, though, and I think those questions are really important because it reaffirmed to me that this was the right thing for me. I can't imagine ever going back. And transitioning was the absolute best thing that I've ever done in my life. But I think that those questions, though, highlight the importance of why we need to ask them, especially with kids that are thinking about transitioning. And um, something that I've shared a lot in this experience is that I didn't have like traditional therapy throughout my transition. I only had it consistently. I had one appointment that was 30 minutes before I got my hormone prescription and that was it. There was no mandated. You were 14 at that time, right? Yeah, I was. So you went there, you had a 30 minute appointment, then you met with a doctor and you walked out with hormones or puberty blockers. 
Yeah, both. Which one? Both. Okay. Yeah. So uh, since I was 14, I had two injections of the blocker and then I went straight to hormones. Um, but it was it was given to me after that 30 minute appointment. And it was and it was very much it wasn't even comprehensive. I remember it specifically. It was yes or no questions like they had like a list of like yes or no questions or like scale of one to ten. Where was, was this questions. in the country? This was in Indianapolis mm-hmm. in, in okay. the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it was at a gender clinic. It was specific. It's specifically like a gender clinic is what they refer to it as. And it was yes or no questions and like scale of one to 10. And I would give short answers, but it was all related to like, do you feel uncomfortable in your body? What do you think about your gender? And I criticized that a lot just because I still, I noticed looking back throughout my transition that a lot of the mental problems I was having were still there throughout different phases of it. Like I started hormones for a few years. I was still unhappy. And then I, I started to have surgery done. I was still unhappy. And it was recently that I look back and I'm like, I'm 10 years into a transition. I still have some of the mental health struggles I had when I started. And that just showed me though, why we need, why my biggest thing that I've always pushed for is that I've never wanted to dictate what people do. I just wanted to give people a perspective of what it looks like. But also the one thing I am firm on is that we aren't requiring enough therapy to go through this process. It should be before and during and while you do it. Yeah, absolutely. I was just watching a TikTok of the other guy of the other day of a guy who was telling everyone how you can just go to Planned Parenthood, tell them you want to look androgynous and they will you can walk out with a prescription for uh, estrogen as a man. And I'm like, that's crazy. This is very serious stuff. And I am, you know, completely supportive of people like you who are adults and want to live their life. However, I um, always treat you as however you want to be treated as a woman. Um, But what I'm not comfortable with is the way I feel kids are pushed down these paths or find themselves going down these paths, but they're not truly given the full risks and benefits and costs. So one thing I did want to ask you about, and I'm, I'm sorry if this is too personal, but will you ever be able to have biological children? Oh, no. Mm-mm. That was gone the moment I started hormones at 14. And one thing that was kind of difficult, and it's hard because I did this back in 2014. So I started, I socially transitioned at 13, like started to, to look differently, like dress and makeup, but actual medical transition was 14. And it was hard. And one of the things that they didn't really emphasize was like saving your sperm. And they almost presented it in a way where it wasn't really practical um, because they told me they were like, if you do want to have kids, you can do that. But you, but people don't realize it's super expensive and it's already expensive to transition and to actually like save sperm. You have to pay every single year that you want it saved and frozen. And it's pretty expensive. And so I would have had to do that starting from 14 all the way till an age where I want a kid. So I would have been paying maybe 10 years, 15 years, 20 years for it to be frozen. And so it just, it's really impractical. So you're telling me at age 14, you had to make the decision for your life, whether you would ever be able to have biological children. Yeah. And I remember so vividly that I did not care. I didn't care at all. Like at the time, because I couldn't even really fathom myself wanting children. 
because I mean, I was one, I was still a I child. Mean, who, who could at 14? Right. Right? <laughs> right. And that's something I think that, I think that's why we need such a, we need such a more comprehensive process to go through this. And we just need it to, to like every single step of it just needs to be really thorough and really thought out and really discussed, especially in like a therapy setting. Because for me, I made that decision so quickly in like a doctor's office and I was 14 years old. You can't even really visualize yourself having kids. Like you're not able to fully digesting that kind of thought process about what that looks like, how fulfilling that could be as an adult because you're, you're still a child. So you're still developing. And so you can't really fathom yourself wanting to reproduce. And now already in my 20s, I'm only, I'm 23 now. And I, I now, that's, that's such a regret of mine is that I can't go back and really take the time to process that kind of decision because my brain just wasn't there. And I didn't really comprehend myself wanting to have a child at the time. I'm not really sure any 14 year old. Right. No, I don't think they, I don't think there's any way they can fully digest that or they can really fully come into that. I think, I think that's a biological thing in our development. Like we don't fully have that desire until we're sexually matured. Yeah. And, and that's so tough, but it sounds like the doctors didn't even impress upon you the full importance of that decision. They were kind of nonchalant. No, it was, I remember it was very quick. They were like, you know, that um, you won't be able to have kids and you won't be able to reproduce unless you save, like you freeze your sperm. That was pretty, that was the way it was phrased to me. And I, all I remembered from that conversation was them talking about how expensive it was. And it is, it's, it's really expensive. And that's something that we really should, that I'm not hearing a lot when we talk about this is that People talk a lot about like, oh, it sterilizes children and this and that. And it does. Absolutely. But I wish people would also emphasize that, that that's something that you really have to be okay with letting go. Because if you want to save your sperm or let's say your eggs or something, it's so expensive. So it's just there's no real practical way for you to biologically reproduce if you're going to transition unless you're willing to spend that much money. Could you have continued your social transition, but then waited till you were 16, 17, 18 to start the medical transition. If you'd done that path, would that be different? I'm not sure. I I definitely think, I definitely think it's in everyone's benefit to take their time. I felt a lot of urgency when I was transitioning just because I had experienced so many negative things in my childhood, like a lot of really traumatic events from the men and the boys in my life and at school. And so I just felt this urgency and that transitioning was going to fix it. And that the faster I transitioned, the more people would treat me better. And the younger I did it, the better I would look. And that was also something that was when I was at the clinic, they emphasized was that, oh, you're at a really good age. Like before you've really gone through much puberty, it's gonna you're going to go through a female puberty it's you're going to have so much so many changes and you're just going to have a better outcome and my family and I all remember it felt like it was always a ticking time bomb with transition like the like you have to start as young as you can to get the most out of it but i just don't think that i just think that you do give up so much when you when you do that and you're going through it faster than you can really digest it and also not having therapy throughout that process, it was it was so much mentally to go through. And I was still having mental I was still having mental health problems, 
even years on the hormones and even when I was having surgery, I was still having the same mental health problems because I think I was just going through it because I just really relied on every aspect of the transition to fix it. And you've talked about how you were also deeply influenced by YouTube and social media. Talk about that a little bit. I, mean, I know you mentioned Jazz Jennings, who for folks that don't know, was like one of the first trans kids in, in America and was put on TLC, like reality TV. How did that influence your thought process? Did it almost like encourage you down this path? I think, I think what it encouraged me to do was do it as quickly as possible. Um, I had, I think I was already really feeling that desire and I was already aware that I just didn't feel aligned with other boys. But when I found trans people online, especially trans adults, I saw a lot of regret and a lot of sadness for not being able to have transitioned younger. I saw that a lot. And they also visibly looked androgynous too. And then I also saw Jazz Jennings and her Barbara Walters interviews because the show wasn't out, but she was doing interviews on ABC. And I remember seeing how how great she looked. Like she looked great. And seeing that along with adults that regretted not doing it younger, that was really where that urgency came from. And I felt like, oh, I need to do this now. And I remember feeling this almost... Like it almost felt like every day that went by, I was losing the chance to have the most out of transitioning. And so I definitely felt that influence for sure. In a way, isn't that actually, I understand that's how you felt and the message you were being fed, but in a way, isn't that actually the opposite of the truth? Because we're going to talk about your surgeries and in terms of a vaginoplasty, which for folks that don't know is the bottom surgery that a trans woman will experience if they want to try to uh, change their genitals to resemble female genitalia, isn't it actually more helpful to do that surgery if you've had more penile development and you've waited till later in your transition because there's more to work with? Yep. A thousand percent. Um, And I had, and I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that when I started hormones and blockers, they did not mention that to me. That's crazy. No. And that's one thing that's so hard is that transition is very complex thing to do. And so I just don't think at the time, and then again, I don't know, but I just don't think at the time the clinic was really fully explaining those things. Or I don't even know if they were fully really even comprehending it themselves, that the younger you start the transition, the more difficult it is to have a bottom surgery done because you don't develop as much in your pelvic floor and especially in your genitalia. And I didn't because I I started on blockers. I had two injections um, over the span of probably like six or seven months. And then I started hormones right away. And because of that, I didn't develop as much um, in my general area. And going into having bottom surgery, they told me that, that, so kind of a, this is like a rough estimate, but when they do penile inversion, which is the most common form of male to female bottom surgery, they estimate that about that your penis length take two inches off of that. That's what they estimate your depth to be internally when you have that surgery done. And so when you already don't have that much because of blockers and then being on hormones as a teenager throughout puberty, it makes it really unfeasible to have that procedure done. 
um, you risk so many complications because with that little depth, it's so likely to just close up, especially because there's very little internally that would really sustain itself. Um, and so for anybody that's been on blockers and hormones, and that's what happened to Jazz Jennings, that's why she had to have the procedure done multiple times was because she had very little development. And they told me that they were like, it, in my case, they said it could be done, but it would have, it just would not, I mean, it wouldn't have a good outcome anyway. Like there was no way for it to be a successful outcome with how little there was to work with, even though it would have been possible. And when you wanted to go down the surgery route or you wanted to explore it, am I right that you actually found a doctor on TikTok? That's how I found Dr. Gallagher, for sure. She was making, I didn't find her on TikTok. I found her on YouTube. Okay. Um, yeah, I found her on YouTube. She was making videos on YouTube, but it was around that same time TikTok was starting to pick up and I and I knew that she was on TikTok, but I, I mostly consumed her content on YouTube. And she made videos about talking about the surgery. She talked about vaginoplasty. She talked about, I think, top surgery. Um, she talked about all kinds of gender-affirming procedures. And I also saw that she was in my city at the time. She was in Indianapolis before she relocated to Miami. Mm -hmm. And so it just felt like... And so it just I was just so grateful. And so I immediately reached out to her for a consult and I met with her and she talked to me about penile inversion and she only did penile inversion which I didn't know but she only did penile inversion so she told me she was it was in that appointment they kind of told me some of the difficulties with it but that it would still be possible but it was I think maybe a month or two after that consult I had with her she relocated Oh, I just want to clarify for people, penile inversion is one option for bottom surgery. There's two or three different options, but so she only did that one kind of. Yeah, it. And, and it's the most commonly done. It's I think it's also been the, the one done the longest. So she referred you to another doctor, right? And that's when you went yeah. down this surgery pathway? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how old and were so you? Because, yeah, I was 18. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was 18 when I met with her and I had that consult. And then going into, and then when she relocated to Miami, um, I had just turned 19 and I was referred to Dr. Roth. Um, he was a surgeon that studied under her and with alongside her. And he was a newer surgeon to the procedure. Mm -hmm. And tell us about that. Like, what did he tell you about the options, about what it would look like afterwards? Did it seem like as big a deal at the time as it proved to be? Yeah, so when I met with him, he actually offered three different options. And he we talked again about how penile inversion probably wouldn't have any real usable outcome for me. And so I was left with either taking a graft from the colon, which is called the sigmoid colon vaginoplasty. Um, but he also offered a newer procedure, and he told me about what's called the peritoneal pull-through vaginoplasty and that is a newer form of the surgery where instead of taking like a graft from the colon to use the internal lining he took a graft from the inner lining of my abdomen skin and he said that this was the newest form of the surgery it has a much more natural result um, I remember him talking about how under a microscope if you looked at like cells of like a biological female's genitals and then this they would look identical 
um, in terms of the internal lining. And it was just made to seem like a miracle, especially because penile aversion was going to be so difficult for me if I were to do it. And that was really discouraging. And so to hear that this was an option for me just really felt like such a miracle. And he went over like all the common risks. He told me that the risks were very similar to, to penile inversion. And it just didn't seem like the, the reward just seemed to outweigh the risk, like by far in the way that it was pre- presented to me. And then you went through with it. You did it. What happened next? Was it just the two to four weeks recovery, they say? Or or was it, um, uh, I, I know your story. I know it was a much rougher experience than that. Yeah, pretty much every complication that is humanly possible happened. Um, you're only supposed to be in, they only estimate you're in the hospital about three days. And then you go home after the surgery. I was there for two weeks because I developed blood clots in my legs. Um, and if that and if those had gone in my heart, I would have had a pulmonary embolism. I couldn't go to the bathroom at all. I couldn't walk. I was nonstop bleeding. I was in so much pain. And it felt like my whole... And this, the procedure was seven hours. It was really long. And it just felt like my whole body had been operated on almost. It 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 was way more intense than I thought it would be. And I, I mean, obviously it's a very intense procedure. It's a reconstructive surgery, but to actually go through it and what happened, it was, it was so severely intense, like the way your body responds to it. And once going home and starting the dilating process, I was never able to fully successfully dilate. It was- Can you explain what that means, dilate? Yeah, so when you have male to female bottom surgery, Obviously, like creating that organ, it doesn't just stay open on its own because it's it's foreign, it's new to the body. And so the body is has a propensity to close it. And what you have to do for the first year is you have to follow a dilation schedule. So you basically they give you four plastic dilators. They're almost like they almost look like plastic sex toys and they're completely smooth. And there's four different sizes in terms of the the width around them. And you insert them and you leave them in for a certain amount of time. And you do that and you do that in a certain schedule each day and every week. And another sign that's very odd to me is that every surgeon has a different schedule for how you do it. I've heard so many different dilation schedules. I've heard some doctors say to do it for an hour a day. I've heard some doctors say to do it 15 minutes twice a day. And that seems really odd to me. You'd think there'd be a developed standard practice. And I think that that's a big, there's a lot of problems with these kind of procedures, but that's a huge one for me. And so Dr. Roth told me 30 minutes twice a day. And so that's what I was doing. And the way that it works with the four sizes is that you start with the first or will you start with whichever size fits in there. And your goal though is to work up all the way to when you're doing twice a day for 30 minutes with the fourth size, which is the largest. And I started on the second and I was never able to move up there. And over time, after weeks and months, it was getting worse. The dilating pain was increasing. The bleeding was increasing every time I did it. And it got so bad to the point that I had to go down a size and I had to go down to the first one. And 
I had like a like checkup with Dr. Roth and he told me that it was normal. It was fine. Um, he said that I could still use it. Like he said, I could still have sex with it. And he encouraged me to try having sex. But there was just really no way to with how much bleeding there was and how much pain there was. Um, he encouraged me to try and use the dilator like a toy. Um, and there's, obviously when you're bleeding... And it's like feels like you're ripping yourself apart. That's not very easy. And he tried, and I tried, I kept trying to tell him that there's so much pain and I don't know why I'm going backwards and dilating. Like it's supposed to get easier every single week and every month, but I'm going backwards. And he told me try pelvic floor therapy, try different angle, try using pillows, like all kinds of things. And it made no difference. And it wasn't until the, almost the end of that year that I had surgery, so about three years ago, that I told him, like, I can't take this anymore. Like, I was almost at a year, and this is when I'm supposed to be able, I'm supposed to be fully healed. And I am still, I've gone all the way down to the first dilator, and I'm bleeding worse than ever when I dilate. And I was panicked. I was like, I did, like how is it that I'm going back to almost where I started with this surgery? And he finally, after months of like trying, like he, it was so hard to get in contact with him. Like it was almost like a five or six month gap with, from when I saw him. And I finally went, I finally was able to get an appointment with him and he did something called a vaginoscopy. It's just like a colonoscopy, but it's in the vagina. And he went in with the camera and looked at it. And he told me that what was happening was um, there was scar tissue all internally inside and it was completely fusing and that's why when I was dilating it was practically ripping the skin open every time and he said that there's just no way to recover it there's such a large accumulation of scarring um in in the organ and your pelvic floor is traumatized and so there was no way to recover that procedure were you told before the procedure that this could happen yeah, and they call it a vaginal stenosis, I believe, and they do have it listed that it's a risk. But and I and I and I believe we did cover that. Like we went through the list of all the things. But what was frustrating for me about what I didn't know about it was that I wasn't told that the peritoneal graft that was used internally is prone to webbing. And what that is is basically that the skin of the peritoneum, which is the inner lining of the abdomen, it's very sticky. And when it's close together, it wants to, to, to adhere to itself and it wants to fuse back. And that's what was happening internally. I met another woman that had this surgery done and the same thing happened to her. When, it's, when they use it to create the internal organ, all of that tissue is surrounding itself. And so it wants to close up immediately and it does it at a higher propensity than the other forms of the procedure. And I was frustrated because he didn't even really, I, that wasn't ever explained to me that you have a higher likelihood of losing depth, of it, of it wanting to fuse back. And he never told me that. And he tried a bunch of different other things. Well, and sorry to cut you off, but you just... Um... You've also talked about how like this was not the common one. This was kind of a new form of it that was presented to you as, oh, look, it's better. And yet it was almost 
like you were a guinea pig or they were um you you talked about in another interview about how they would come like show the residents to you and like look look what we're trying with this person how does it feel to feel like they were trying something on you that they didn't fully even understand and was new and almost felt experimental yeah and it absolutely was i didn't know until later and that's one thing that's hard is i understand like a lot of people have told me they're like well didn't you have a lot of information like you're supposed to be given hundreds of pages about this kind of surgeries and stuff i was given four pages um i was given a four page paper and it wasn't even for the peritoneal surgery it was for penile immersion it was like so a pre-op guy not even accurate then yeah and i didn't know that the first time that peritoneal surgery was done so the peritoneal procedure was created for biological women and for infants that are born with genital deformities. But they ported it over and tried it on a male to female patient for the first time in 2017. And they told me that I was the youngest person to have it done. And I remember being in the hospital. They were all so excited and they were really, they were just, they had never, They I remember them coming in and they would say, we've never seen anybody this young have this done and it's really exciting. It's really cool. And he brought in a lot of surgical residents to look at it and all kinds of things. And it was just a, it was a really difficult experience, especially because I was going through so much pain and I just, I had no idea how brand new this was and how, there was just such a lack of information given to me about it. And I just wish, because all the information given to me was for penile inversion. It was all guides for penile inversion surgery. Which is not the surgery you had. Yeah. And they kind of just use it as like a general vaginoplasty guide. And that it's just frustrating because that it's an entirely different experience to go through this form of the surgery. I mean, you're dealing with a completely different tissue as you're lining internally. And so it's going to behave differently. It's going to heal differently. And none of that was thoroughly explained to me. It's all just kind of lumped into like a vaginoplasty conversation or guide. And it was really to my detriment because I feel like if I had had that specific information about this, I would have, we, we could have, I, I could have picked up on what was going wrong faster, but I didn't know. I, it was just trying to come up with a bunch of different things to try and figure out what was wrong. So after everything went wrong, could it be further improved through more surgery? Were there options or was it kind of like this didn't work and there's nothing we can do? So when they found out it was, when they found out that like the surgery couldn't be recovered, um, he told me to try a second, a second procedure and that he wanted to do a second procedure to fix it. And he referred me to two other doctors and both of them refused to operate. They did MRIs and scans and said that there's just no way to recover it. Um, There's too much scar tissue. My pelvic floor is completely traumatized. They said, if we tried to operate on you again, you would more than likely have the same complications, worse complications, or you would be lethal. And... I told Dr. Roth that I was like, I don't understand why you told me we would just do a second surgery. Both doctors are refusing and 
He still insisted that it can be done. He was like, I'll send you to another doctor. And he wanted to just kind of like try and get me to any doctor. And once one said yes, then we would go through with it. But I push, I started to push back there and I was like, I just don't think this is right. Like, why would, like, I don't understand. You were so set on it being an easy second surgery. And he had told me it would be an easier second surgery um, because they're not doing anything externally. He would just fix the internal part. But all the doctors said it would be a much more severe procedure to have it done again. And it was at that point I lost contact with him. Do you, on the whole, regret it in that if you could go over and do it again, would you not have bottom surgery? I have some trans women friends who have transitioned totally, but have chosen not to go with bottom surgery. What would you do if you could make the choice over again? Yeah, I wouldn't do it. Um, It was, or if I were, I would go through it at a much slower process and I would actually, I would really... I think I would take more time. I think I just felt a sense of urgency because I really thought I really thought that this form of the procedure was just such a miracle and it was so brand new and it was going to be such an incredible result. But I I just I looking back, I think that if I had taken more time, I would have learned to be okay with being a trans woman with a penis. I think I could have I think I could have really grown into it. And, and really, as I got older, really weighed the pros and cons better than I could have at the time. Because at the time, I was still, I was still like 19 when I had that first console. And so you're still, I think we sometimes forget, like you're still going through regular body image issues. And not only in this, especially as a trans person, like I had so much dysphoria with my entire body. And now coming into it, I didn't, I, there's still so many things I didn't know about what my life would have been, even if the surgery would have been successful. Let's say it was. I've talked to so many people where it's still a huge hassle and you still have to dilate a lot before sex and it can be a really difficult experience. And there was so much that I just wasn't aware of. And I didn't fully have the time because like, as soon as insurance approved it two weeks after the consult with Dr. Roth, we had a surgery date set. Wow. And so, yeah, it just, it was a really quick process. And I just think that I should have taken, and I think that that's, that's not even just other people's fault. Like I also take my own accountability and that I think that I would just had so many negative feelings around my body. And then also being 19 years old and seeing this surgery presented to me, I thought it was going to fix everything. And I wish I just would have taken more time to really think about what would it be like if I I kept my original genitals and would that be fulfilling for me? Would it be worth it? And I think it would be. I think it absolutely would have been. Yeah. So th- this is something interesting for me because I'm somebody and I'm curious what your thoughts is, but I have criticized legislation that would restrict people who are 18, 19, 20, 21 um, from accessing surgery or hormone therapy or other things, because I'm more of a libertarian at heart. I really believe like adults should be able to do whatever they want with their bodies. But it does sound like at least on the medical side, there should be a more patient process, at least in that I'm not necessarily I'm curious for your thoughts, but not banning it, but making sure people really understand what they're going through. 
to avoid situations like what happened to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think my perspective on it is I feel the same way. I don't think I think once we start getting into the to like trying to trying to restrict adults, then I think you just open up a much wider issue in the sense of because I think the argument that they're using now is that trans people are mentally ill people. And so that's where you see the conversation going with people that want to, like, for some reason, they pick 26. They want to restrict it to, like, 26 years old. And you see older ages that they want to push it. But you open up a bigger issue when you start saying, well, trans people have mental illness. Well, if we want to be technical, some people that want breast implants or want any facial procedures, they could have body dysmorphic disorder. And so you just open up a wider conversation about... I mean, I have anxiety. I have mental illness. Should I not be allowed to make decisions about my own health and body? Exactly. And so, and I've always said, like, I I don't think that we should restrict it when it comes to adults. I think it's an adult decision. And I, and I even take my own accountability for things in that process that where things went wrong and that I maybe should have taken more time. But I don't think it should be taken from adults. Um... But especially if a minor is going to have any sort of procedure. But I haven't heard of like any, I haven't heard of anybody younger than 17 getting bottom surgery. Um, and so even I think there, I think that 17, I don't think, I think even with the parent consent, I think just wait till 18. And even then take your time. And that's where my biggest, my anything, if I'm going to advocate for anything, it's going to be way more mandated psychotherapy throughout this process um and that's where i think with i don't think that it should be the the freedom of the choice should be taken away but i think that we should have more rigid guidelines for it yeah and that could come from regulation but it could also come from the medical profession right changing their practices and standards in this new area of medicine because there's a lot of activists masquerading as doctors at this point who are citing very, very low quality junk studies and saying the debate is settled, this all works and there's no problems. And I I find it really disheartening because it's not an honest scientific debate about the best way to help people with gender dysphoria anymore. It's been politicized. It's been hijacked by ideology on both extremes. And I just want the best for people who find themselves in a situation like you find yourself in. I have friends who are transgender, who have gender dysphoria. But I don't think I think both extremes are increasingly using trans people like pawns in a culture war. And I think that's really, really unfortunate, Um, not just for the overall discourse, but for trans people themselves. I do want to talk about the trans community because. One, I mean, is there even such a thing, right? Like just like the gay community, right? We're all individual. But. Online, there is like a trans community that's probably not representative of real life, but these are the people who are all the trans TikTokers, the YouTubers, the with one or two exceptions, like Blair White, like you, like Buck Angel. Um, How have they responded to you speaking out and warning people about the risks of the surgery? Are you like a welcome voice? Like, hey, guys, trans voices matter. Listen to trans people. Or are they like, shut the up, turf? (laughs) It's funny because, like, I've noticed, okay, so <laughs> I've had issues with both ends of it. So a, a lot of the activists, they just didn't, they felt, they kind of criticized me, like, kind of how they criticize the trans people, where they try and say that we take one negative experience and use that to, 
to paint like broad strokes of the entire community. And a lot of them try and shut down my perspective just because they're like, well, you're just saying this because you regret it. And you and I've heard all kinds of different reasons. You don't even regret your transition on the whole. You are not a detransitioner. Like they're like, like they like to come up with different excuses. Like, oh, she never if she if like her surgery didn't go wrong, she wouldn't say a word. And I was already having thoughts like this then. I just didn't feel comfortable saying it. And they've just they tried it's a lot of almost the thing the the way that they try and shut down detransitioner stories um just saying that like oh you're you're just amplifying one negative thing and trying to say that all transition is negative but overall i say i do get received pretty decently um i think it's just because i've always made it clear that like i'm not going to sit up here and dictate what other people do um more so i just use my perspective to give a better a better look into where I think we go wrong in transitioning people um, and where I think it should be improved. And I think that it's for the benefit of trans people oh, more than anything. What about the right and conservatives, right? How have they treated you? I know some people have been welcoming to you. I thought Candace Owens in her interview with you was very compassionate, but I'm guessing that's not the only kind of reception you've received. I would say, I would say mostly it has been very lovely. Um, Candace, yeah, Candace was such an amazing. I'm so grateful I got to meet her, and I think, and I'm really happy that people got to see a different side of her there, because the way that she acted on camera was how she was off camera with me, um, so loving and compassionate, um, and took so, took such amazing care of me when I was with her. But the one thing, the right has been very mixed with how they've sort of received it. I think that they like when I criticize. Like what, where there are faults in the trans in transitioning, especially when it comes to kids. And my biggest, the thing that has frustrated me the most is, is seeing my story be misused, where they kind of use it as a way, they kind of use it like how they'll use detransitioner stories to paint a really bad light on all of transitioning, especially all transition of people under 18. And I've never explicitly said that. And so that's been the thing that's frustrated me the most is seeing my story get a little bit twisted for a certain narrative. Um, or just, I think that there's also just a lot of people on the right that will never like trans people. And so I think that that's also part of it more than anything. Mm-hmm. And um, I wonder too, because how do you, how does it feel as a, so are your political beliefs more right-leaning just in general? Yeah, mm-hmm. I definitely like I spend a lot of time like just reading about all kinds of different policy and different things. And I would say definitely moderate, more right leaning for sure. Well, that alone makes you a little bit of an outlier in the LGBT or trans community. Yeah, no, they don't like that. <laughs> they really don't like at all. Like I it's funny because I feel like and like I told you, I feel like I'm quite moderate. Like there are definitely trans people more conservative than me that that I have voices out there. But I, I consider myself moderate, quite right leaning, and you know you know exactly what they call you. The the they 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 say that I talk like a fascist or like neo Nazi, and I'm like, I feel like I'm quite reasonable. Like I don't feel like I've ever said that. Like it's just wild how like any deviation of what we consider like very strict guidelines of activism and certain things, it's just seen in such an extreme light. Like both sides of it have gone so extreme. Are you uh, and, are you a heavily online person like me? Like I know you, you watch a lot of YouTube. Are you active on Twitter? 
Oh, yeah, very yeah. much. Mm -hmm. so yeah, then, it's something I've always done. Over the last year or two, I do feel like I've I've witnessed a real coarsening of the discourse on the right about trans people. Um, yeah. Speaking about them very harshly, attacking them all as predators or groomers or, you know, men in dresses, etc. Have you witnessed the same kind of change in tone? And then how does that feel as a trans person who's right-leaning? What? It's Oh, no, absolutely. Like you've seen the language really take a dramatic shift. I would say especially this year because I think, and this is how I look at it. Um, I get a little frustrated because the conversation has become quite Puritan more than anything. And I think that that goes back really to the core value of the Republican Party and the conservative party. It's to conserve. That's that's literally in the name. And it's to conserve their bedrock is really a traditional family and the family unit being the structure of our, of a successful country. And what what is a part of that is very traditional gender roles for the male and the female of that relationship and of that of that bedrock family and what you're seeing now is you're seeing such you're seeing such really really strong negative language like i never i never have seen it until this year eradicate now i'm seeing the word eradicate trans tra they say transgenderism but we all know that, in, but the only way to do that is to eradicate the people that practice it. Like you can't just eradicate an idea without the people involved. Well, they in would it. say, they would say like Michael Knowles and other people who say that means that they don't want to kill trans people. They want them to be, go back to living as their birth sex. Right. But that will kill people. That's the thing is like, I think, I think it's like, I, I get where they try and make that separation, but that, that will harm people. For example, explain. Like, yeah. For example, like um, it was polled back in 2022. They looked at trans use and, uh, and gender nonconforming use. And you saw 86% of them developed negative self-image because of discourse, the discourse around trans people and the extremely negative language. And over half of them contemplated suicide. And that's all because of the conversation we're having about trans people. And the really negative language, and I and and you look at the suicide rate, or you look at the self harm rate of the trans community. If you force these people to detransition, that have exhibited increased mental health positivity, increased quality of life, you're going to make them go back to something that would lower that. Does that really seem feasible? And you really don't think that that would harm them and pot potentially lead them to hurt themselves? Like I think that that's just one of those things where. It's a very obvious correlation there that if you were to do that, it's very likely that these people would be hurt. Well, for me, it's it's also just a, a freedom question. Right. It's like, Absolutely. Who, who are you yeah. to tell other people how they have to live? Not you. I'm yeah, saying who I, are the people who want to eradicate yeah. transgenderism? Who are they to tell adults how to live or what they have to do or ban thing? It's like. Do you want us micromanaging your life and how your your family and coming in and threatening to throw you in jail if you keep going to Absolutely. church or I agree. And that's the thing. And that just shows you like and I say this as someone on the right, but I'm also hyper aware of the reality of the right. I have right wing beliefs, but I don't consider myself to be in like a conservative person because I know I go against their core value. And that's something that 
I get a little frustrated. And something that frustrates me lately is a lot of the LGB without the T. I get a little frustrated with that movement. And although there are great people in it, there's great people that I respect that do amazing advocacy. But I think what you're seeing is sort of a self-protection instinct from a lot of people in the LGBT community where they're seeing such they're seeing the increase in the dramatics of the trans conversation um but that's also a carefully crafted narrative um because for example if you look in media if you see anything that has to do with a trans person transgender will be the first word in that article even if it's irrelevant i saw it a few days ago like on daily mail they published a story of a trans woman that did something really bad but it had nothing to do with the crime yeah, they do that. Yeah, but for because we've created such a major negative conversation around trans people, and there's also so much research to show that people consume more news that's negative than positive. There was an experiment done where a news organization ran only positive media, and they lost two-thirds of their viewership. <laughs> that's and so depressing. We, as, a, as a recovering right. journalist, that's so depressing. Right, but I mean, we pro- like media profits off of negativity. It's like, they're like that doom and gloom is what gets people to tune in. And because of that, what you're seeing now is media taking advantage of that in a way that they can benefit and they can retain viewership and revenue. And so they're going to highlight all these negative stories about trans people. But this is also boosted by the party also being very intentional and in framing trans people in a different light. Um and I think that what you're seeing is LGBT, LGB people become very defensive and they see it as a way to chop off the bad apples of the community um, because there's such a negative light on them. And I just think it's a horrific strategy because these people are using religious talking points. If you look at it, like calling trans people groomers or child predators or they're indoctrinating people to being trans. But go back to the 70s. Go back to the 70s and look at Anita Bryant. She spearheaded the campaign because at the time, people really didn't didn't have negative affiliations with gay people. They really didn't. Like people, whether they, even if they disapproved of it, they, they weren't as galvanized to like go vote against them. But it wasn't until Anita Bryant spearheaded the campaign that gay people were after kids. She believed that gay people were, the gay agenda was trying to become teachers. Gay men were trying to become teachers to then infiltrate children and to indoctrinate children into the homosexual lifestyle. And so now you're seeing you're seeing like prominent gay people and gay people spouting evangelical talking points that 30 years ago were used against them. So let's unpack this a little bit because I think I totally see where you're coming from. My one thing though is if all trans people were like you or like Blair White I would have no interest in any LGB without the T. And I also don't call people groom. Like I'm not on board with just calling people groomers saying they're after kids. I don't do that lightly. I don't do that almost ever. At the same time though, I will say part of this does seem to be ammunition that extreme voices within the trans community have handed to conservatives because I play, I play TikTok after TikTok Mm -hmm. after TikTok on this show sometimes where a trans activist is singing to three-year-olds about they, them pronouns, 
or teachers talking about how they have non-binary kindergartners in their and they encourage them. And so I don't know. Well, I completely people, agree. Most trans people aren't after kids, but a sub portion of the community kind of does seem to be. And that makes it easier for people to write off the whole community. No, I agree. And I think that one thing that we need to acknowledge, though, is that we also live in a different time in terms of social media. And social media is very rewarding to to actions like that. To crazy people. Social yeah, social media really boosts and platforms people that dive into an ideology. And that's why you see those TikToks in the first place. Like even on my phone, like I see non-binary all day on my phone and, I'm, and I don't even look up anything related to that. And so it's social media algorithms pick it up and boost it and it amplifies it and people get rewarded for the more they indulge in those identities. And so I think that's honestly, but I think where I don't like it is the framing that it's a trans thing. They're framing it as, oh, we don't do that. Trans people do. But in reality, we live in a different time where those kind of actions are rewarded and those kind of identities. And we live in a culture now where people aren't as in community in person. They're in community online. And so they, they, they it's a constant like one up of each other in terms of the identity and to build that community. And that gets boosted by social media. But if you look back even a couple of decades ago, like talking about like, you talked about like teachers saying that they have non-binary kids and this and that. Those kind of arguments were there in the 70s and into the 80s. They were. Like I remember, like I looked and I read a story talking about the reason why even that movement started talking about the gay agenda, indoctrinating children and gay men doing that was because these people were being shown videos of men engaging in, in engaging in wrong acts with children and they were, and they were showing them examples whether they were real or not of gay men trying to become teachers and turning kids gay and so those kinds of things were there but obviously in history they have a different perception because that's the 70s 80s we're talking about but if, if you look at it they do mirror themselves quite a bit but to, but we live in a time though where social media boosts everything to the extreme everything is to the extreme and so that's why i think sometimes we've lost a little bit of historical perspective and that's why trans people seem so extreme. And I agree that they are. I agree that they are. And the activism is a mess because they're advocating for trans people in the absolute wrong way. But at the same time, I think that we also do need to see that it does kind of align with the arguments used a couple decades ago. I think that what we're accrediting to being a unique trans thing, like it's just it's it's, it's not gay people that did that. It's trans people. I think it's also it has a lot to do with our social media culture at the same time. Yeah, there was no videos and social and TikToks right. at the time. Mm -hmm. And maybe you would have seen gay yeah. teachers doing inappropriate things and going viral more often. Back yeah, then. I don't know. Maybe you would have. But... Yeah, that was. Yeah, because that was the argument then. And so I think that it's just social media. Now people have created that ammunition that and, 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 and this is not me excusing it. Like, I'm not saying that it's an excuse. Um, but I just think that I really wish that we we took the time to really digest that historical perspective of it. That's because valid. the strategy, yeah, the strategy of chopping off trans people from the community will never work. Well, it's never going to um, happen. So it's kind of a moot point. Happen. But I will just say, yeah. 
I can understand why gay people who fought so hard for acceptance and finally achieved it and are now kind of seeing we're seeing anti-gay backlash as well. We're seeing uh, more homophobia. We're seeing declining support for gay rights um, would look at, you know, the most extreme examples of trans activists who are doing incredibly distasteful things, flashing their breasts at the White House, um, you know, singing right. about they them pronouns to toddlers and little kids uh, and be like, I don't want to be associated with that. I can understand that impulse, even though I do acknowledge, A, it's never going to happen, and B, that's yeah. not all trans people or even most trans people. Right. And I think that, but I just, I honestly genuinely think it's just a lot of hypocrisy because, I mean, look at the Senate scandal and look at the language that came up with that. Like, they're literally talking, like, you're seeing conservatives talk about sodomy. Yeah. They're talking, they're calling people sodomites. So it's clear that like those values, like, and so that's what I, I really want gay people that are kind of trying to aim some negativity at trans people. I want them to remember the bedrock of the party is the traditional family unit and the roles associated within it. LGBT people will always differ from that. They always will. That's why now you're even seeing the conversation. Have you noticed the conversation about surrogacy? Oh, yes. I haven't dived into this on this Look, podcast, yeah. yes, but it's very toxic. Look at how they're starting to talk about gay men using surrogacy. Like, the, so it always goes back to that value. It always goes back to that value. And so I get where gay people are coming from, and they're seeing a lot of exposure of negative trans material. But at the same time, don't think that by solely condoning trans people and saying, Gay people have fought so hard for this, and now they're doing this. In reality, the, there's always been a target on everybody. And that's why you're now seeing that trans people have turned so negative in the public eye. Now they got their foot in the door, and you saw a lot of that discourse pop up with gay people with the Senate scandal. Yeah. And you're seeing the conversation about surrogacy. Well, I've Look also argued that the extreme people in the gay community give us all a bad name, too. <laughs> Um, right, right. But I just, yeah, I just, yeah, I do kind of lot, think, so. though, if we were the the LGB without the T thing, it, in my view, it the ship has sailed. Like they are, it is LGBT. It's not never going to change. Right. However, right. I would right. say in the abstract, I do think sexuality and gender identity are like different or distinct concepts. Oh, they are. So yeah. I think if I was designing a different world, I'm not sure they would be like. I'm not sure it makes sense for them to be inherently linked. I agree that they now are, but I'm I'm not sure that on the most theoretical of basis, it really does make sense because they're not the same or or they're not like like bisexual, lesbian, and gay people all have something in common about their sexual orientation. Trans people is about gender identity. It just kind of seems like its own thing. And I'm not saying that makes it worse or bad. I'm just saying it makes it different and distinct. And I don't really inherently understand the grouping other than as a necessary outcrop of the need for like civil rights and acceptance and against, you know, a traditionalist um, backlash and and that. I'm not sure I, I, I fully understand them as concepts that should, in theory, be grouped together. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with that partially i think I, I i can definitely see because i think they have different needs and they have different advocacy needs for sure trans people obviously have very different needs from lgbt people and lgbt lgbt people advocate for different things than trans people typically do but i think that there's too much overlap for it to fully be 
decategorized in the way that it is. Um, and and I think that just also goes back to history. Like, for example, like you go back to the early 1900s and there were researchers done um, and there were there there even were clinics opened to the treatment of homosexuals. But that always included gender nonconformity. Um, and that was always present there. And that was because a lot of the needs did overlap. And I think that more things overlap than separate them. And that's just my personal opinion. Um, and I think that there's so much shared. And I think that it's not even just like looking at it at face value. There's so much more cultural overlap with gay and trans people. Um, there's so much more shared experience between lesbian, gays, and bisexuals and trans people. Um, there's so many There's so many different thought processes exchanged that are very similar. And so I think that there's just so many different aspects of it that overlap more than separate them. I think some people who are in this kind of like right-leaning LGBT umbrella agree with you. Some people don't. And I, I yeah, that's okay. some people come at it from a place of bad faith. Like I will say some of the LGB without the T advocacy comes off as genuinely transphobic. Um, like yeah. they, some of them seem to genuinely find trans people disgusting. And I think that's really wrong and really cruel and very hypocritical. Um, but there are some people who just don't really view them as being grouped together. I think I used to be more in that camp and I've become a lot more sympathetic to grouping them together over the years, but I can still see where they're coming from. And I acknowledge some of them, I think, ha hold that belief in, in good faith, but I definitely do agree with you. And I've seen you spar with them on Twitter. Some of the LGBT yeah, without the team people are pretty toxic. Like because they're because like it gets to a point where where they I mean they act like evangelicals and I just like I just do I just don't understand how they can even comprehend talking points like that when those talking points 40 years ago were used to try and take them down. And I think that that's just people I think it's it's really just trying to save face. I think you see a lot of people where their guard goes up when they see such negative press and they see so many negative eyes on the LGBTQ community as a whole. And so I think people want to distance themselves from what's being so negatively discussed and what people want to eradicate, what people want to take, what people want to put laws in place to restrict. And so I think people want to protect their, to protect themselves. And so I understand where it comes from, but I just, I really encourage people to really look at it from a holistic point of view and to look at it in a bigger picture because Trying to chop up LGBT people will never be a successful strategy. Going after trans people as a gay person is never going to be a successful strategy because, like I said, the people the people that because at the at the same time, where does that come from? That's what I challenge people. Think about where where that's coming from for you. the what is the what is your objective when you try and eliminate like they always talk about taking away the TQ? What is your objective in doing that? What will you achieve if you do that? You will achieve good grace and you will be in good standing and good favor with most likely people on the right that are heavily criticizing them. And in reality, the same kind of things that they're using against us do go back to you. And that's why that's why I brought up the Senate and the surrogacy conversation, because now you're seeing those first little drops of them starting to have the conversation about why gay people are also degenerate. And it's a perversion, like it's a perversive lifestyle, and why it's threatening the family. 
All right. Well, Brianna, we will leave it there for now. I want to thank you so much. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a whole thing. I yeah. honestly, you know, I'm going to have to have you back because there's like a bunch of topics. This ran significantly longer than my interviews usually run, but there's a bunch of I didn't oh even God. ask you about that. I would love to get your thoughts on. So you're going to have to come back. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your bravery in telling your story. I know it can't be easy. It's it's pretty easy to get up here and run your mouth about like things that are just out there in the world and give your opinion. It's a whole nother thing to open up the book and talk about yourself and your own story. That's that that's very vulnerable. And so I commend you for doing it. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much uh, for coming on the Damage Control Podcast. Okay, thank you so much. I had an amazing conversation with you. I will definitely be back. Hey guys, Brad here, cutting in to remind you that I host another podcast, a weekly political podcast called the Based Politics Podcast, where me and my co-host Hannah Cox, we break down the biggest news stories and what's trending on the internet and give you our nonpartisan, honest opinions. If that would interest you and you want more Brad, check out the links in the description to make sure that you're also subscribed to and watching the Base Politics Podcast. But regardless, thanks for tuning in to Damage Control. All right, guys, let's move on to everybody's favorite part of the podcast, where I subject myself to mental torture and react to some unhinged TikToks from the alphabet people. Up first, more dumb woke outrage over Chick-fil-A. I'm a dietitian, and this is what I order from Chick-fil-A. Nothing, because I don't support bigots. Honestly, I just can't relate to this at all. They could be as bigoted as they want, as bigoted in the world. Uh, I'm still going in for that chicken. I'm sorry, not sorry. Those waffle fries. I also like that kale crunch. I'm here for it. But more importantly, this whole backlash against Chick-fil-A is really dumb. And it's basically based on nothing at this point. So it goes back to the past where Chick-fil-A's owners in their personal capacity donated to groups and opposed gay marriage. The thing is, though, Chick-fil-A as a company never in its practices or its policies discriminated against gay people or gay customers at all. The issue people had with them was always just about the private beliefs of their owners, mostly. And that's no way to go about deciding who you're going to do business with. I mean, do you make sure that every waiter shares your politics when you go out to eat? Do you quiz your baristas who, who they voted for last election when you make your way through the Starbucks drive through No. One of the great things about capitalism and free markets is that we trade with people who are very different from ourselves, and that's okay. And more importantly, as far as Chick-fil-A donating to anti-LGBTQ groups or anything, that was always disputable. It was always more complicated than that. They donated to groups that had some sort of purpose, like the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and then had maybe anti-gay policies, but that wasn't the emphasis of their work. So it was always more complicated than that. But regardless, they stopped all the controversial giving back in 2019. These woke outrage mongers just don't care about facts and never bother to update their talking points. Up next, is the LGBT community fatphobic? I'm gonna be really honest. There's a lot of really fatphobic people out there even in the queer community. I was a go-go dancer at a pride party and the amount of money that I made versus the amount of money that the thin people made was not the same. <laughs> Sometimes people don't even feel comfortable like putting the money in my underwear, but people are like really awkward with like, should I touch you, should I? And I see them <laughs> fully touching other people. So those are little reminders that people still have a lot of work to do around. I'm sorry, but what the f did I just watch? <laughs> 
There's nothing unique to the LGBT community about the fact that people don't typically like erotic dancers who are morbidly obese. And it's not fat phobic to be attracted to health and fitness. The definition of fat phobia, according to Cambridge Dictionary, is an unreasonable dislike or unfair treatment of people because they are fat. Of course, I don't support bullying or body shaming or being mean or discriminating against anybody, of course, overweight people included. But people still have no obligation to find you physically attractive when they don't. It's natural and evolutionary that people are attracted to health and fitness and other traits associated with survival. That's not unreasonable, so it's not fat phobic. There's also something weird and frankly vaguely predatory about basically trying to say that it's problematic or bigoted that other people aren't comfortable touching your private parts. Whatever happened to the whole emphasis on consent and no means no? Maybe you should stop all the nonsense and uh, find a new line of work. Up next, words officially mean nothing anymore. Oh, honey, of course you see an Adam's apple. That's because I have one. I also have hairy armpits and big biceps and a dick. I'm sorry your insult didn't land, but thanks for giving me the opportunity to platform this point, which is that none of those things make me any less feminine. What is feminine or masculine or androgynous is something that can only be defined for me by me. I can't define it for anyone else and neither can you. Which also means you can't insult me by pointing out things that you perceive as masculine. So better luck next time, I guess. Um, the math isn't mathing for me. If hairy armpits and big biceps are now considered feminine, then words have lost all meaning. Honestly, I struggle to even follow this train of thought. Like, the incoherence here is so palpable that I'm trying to decipher it for you guys, and even I'm struggling as somebody who's buried in this stuff all the time online. Seriously, if masculine and feminine are concepts that are completely subject to your own self-determination, they are completely subjective, they're whatever you want them to be, then how do they even exist? as distinct, different, or opposite categories. How are they even categories at all? Red and blue refer to specific colors. If red and blue could refer to any color, then the words red and blue would be meaningless. There'd be no real difference between red and blue. I'm all about people living their life however they want and looking however they want, even if that's not traditionally masculine and they're a male or traditionally feminine and they're a woman. I'm totally fine with all of that. But I can't feel like some of these people are essentially gender anarchists. They really do want to destroy the concepts of gender and sex as we know them in society. And I don't think they can be surprised that they're encountering resistance to that. Up next, a creepy little song about bathrooms? I'm a trans girl and I just want to pee in peace But I'm afraid someone will see me and then call the police I'm not some pervert attacker, I just need to empty my bladder So I'd really love it if you let me be Repeat after me, I'm not afraid of my trans friend I'm not afraid, afraid of my trans friend I'm really afraid of cisgender men I'm really afraid of cisgender men I will let you pee in peace I will let you pee in peace Because I really don't want a UTI Capiche?
I'm really not a fan of the singing thing and the whole like childlike demeanor almost that some of these TikTok activists seem to be going for. Like, why are you a trans girl? Aren't you a trans woman? You're a grown adult. On the bathroom thing, though, I, I do have some sympathy for this person's position, what they're trying to say, because if you present fully as a woman or and, and you are, of course, by nature, biologically male, it doesn't make a lot of sense to force you to use the men's room. Vice versa as well. If you're a transgender man who fully presents and looks like a man, it doesn't make a lot of sense to force you to use the men's room either. And transgender people aren't more dangerous or out there roaming and going into women's bathrooms to hurt people. At the same time, though, I can understand the concerns that women and other people have, not about trans individuals specifically harming them, but that if you erode the barriers that keep opposite sex people out of those spaces, that yes, cisgender men or just men could abuse those rules and come and harm them. I can completely understand those fears and those concerns. At the same time, the kind of person who would do them harm probably isn't deterred by rules in the first place anyway. It's not an easy issue, and I don't necessarily see a one-size-fits-all solution. What I do know is that vaguely creepy TikTok sing-alongs aren't going to solve it. Up next, this TikToker is very concerned about heteronormativity. I don't think that straight people really realize just how like heteronormative um, and like built around straight people society is. Um, like even like earlier this year, I was getting my blood drawn on my birthday, January 1st, in case anyone wants to buy me anything for next year. Um, no, but you have to. Uh, and so I was getting my blood drawn and I really hate needles. Hot take, I hate needles. And the person who's drawing my blood, a very nice woman, um, saw that I was very nervous and she was like, she's like, Oh, like she's like, sweetie, think of good things. Think of the beach. Think of, think of, think of beautiful girls. And I was like, I was like, well, and I said to her, and I was, I was very polite. I said, you know, I'm not really sure if my boyfriend would appreciate that. This was when I had a boyfriend. Um, and, and she was like, oh, like, okay, I apologize. And I was like, I was wearing this shirt, I think. And like, I read like this. And so I'm like, the fact that you would assume that, like, in this day and age, you'd be like, oh, yeah, like, think of little beautiful girls, you, you, Aiden. Um, anyway, it's just interesting. I don't fault, like, I'm not, like, dox her, because I don't, I also don't remember her name, but I wouldn't. I, I have nothing against her, but I'm just like, that's how built into everything heterosexuality is. I do not understand the point of this video. Like, why do TikTokers always seem obsessed with these petty complaints and the most minor of interactions and trying to spin some narrative about societal ills based on them? Also, I find it funny because for a long time, I, f I feel like they were saying, don't assume my gender, don't assume my sexuality. And now he's saying you should have assumed I was gay because of how I present and act. Um, more importantly, though, I don't really understand why they're so bothered by the concept of heteronormativity. The word norm, at its derivative, is actually about the statistical norm. What's the most common occurrence is what that means. And it is, in fact, the case that the vast, vast majority of human beings are heterosexual. Whether it's 1 in 20 or 1 in 10, it's hard to know exactly, or something in between, a small but not insignificant minority of the population is gay or lesbian. So it kind of makes sense that the default in society would be heterosexuality 
when that's what the vast, vast majority of people are. Now, that's not to say that there shouldn't be acceptance and tolerance for alternatives and something that's not the norm. I think, of course, there should be. But it still makes sense that that's treated as the norm because it is. In any other situation, we would see this, right? Like the vast majority of people are right-handed. So if you meet someone and you don't know, you'll probably assume they're right-handed. If you find out they're actually left-handed, you should just accept that and let them write with their left hand. But it's still okay to assume that people are generally right-handed. This entire genre of woke LGBT activism and criticism has just never made any sense to me. But I guess that's the norm as well. <laughs> All right, guys, that's it for this part of the podcast where I put myself through mental torture for your entertainment, pleasure, and viewing. So you better like, comment, subscribe, yada, 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 because I lose brain cells every time I do this, and I do it for you. All right, everybody, that is it for this episode of the Damage Control Podcast. If you made it to this point of the show, you got to have liked something. So do consider dropping a like and commenting with your thoughts if you're on Facebook or YouTube. And if you're listening to us on audio, please do take a second and rate and review on Apple or Spotify. That really helps us out. Oh, and by the way, guys, there will not be an episode of Damage Control next week. So enjoy your holiday and we'll be back with more in the new year. 